Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hey, we are back for another episode of In the Landscape. We're in our studio, still in our home studio, staying as safe as we can here in our little neck of the woods in Texas, just outside of Houston. And uh, we hope the same is true for you wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in for another week. If you've just found us, welcome. That's right. Got a big old back catalog of things that you can check out, which hopefully more than anything just has useful tips and ideas for your own landscape practice, even that's that's you know, on the fire escape in your apartment or on a 40-acre property, these principles apply. Design, horticultural elements, maintenance elements, and um, we hope you find something useful. And certainly you can search by topic if there's something that speaks to you in particular. Right. It's nice, you know, in my, like networking with fellow designers, horticulturalists, when I connect with someone and we get to know each other, I often say, oh, you know, take a listen to our podcast. Love to hear what you think. And People often surprise you, and they'll the episode that'll be meaningful to them will might be one I forgot about. They'll say, "Oh, I really love this topic," and so it's like maybe the nature of education, entertainment. You don't know what will appeal, and sometimes you feel like something different. Like it's it might be very familiar with a topic, and you want to hear something else. Well, we always are open to suggestions for topics, absolutely. And um, if you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on the air, so to speak. We're, we're uh, receptive to that as well. I think mm-hmm. um, you can also find us on social media platforms. And it's really lovely when we are connected with in that format, uh, somebody will at us or <laughs> <laughs> tag us, I guess is what they say. Or you can even use the hashtag to get our attention in the landscape and show us your landscapes, show us what's out there. We'd love to see it. So today's episode is a perennial favorite. All about perennials, Um, which is actually a topic we haven't really covered. Your practice is so heavy into the woody shrubs. Well, Mm -hmm. not to say your design practice. Your design practice, of course, you have this architectural setup that is, uh, you know, something we've discussed before with the kind of like woody trees and shrubs. And then, of course, you create these great sort of flowing beds out of perennials that I've Mm -hmm. seen in your work. So they're certainly not shortchanged in the design practice. But in terms of our maintenance practice, maintenance and care, our specialty just happens to be the woody trees and shrubs and the the ornamental, almost health conscious pruning of those plants. Right, in to make particular. those really, to make them thrive. And you actually did a <clears throat> full day. So, you know, talk about uh, changing times. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you are working with a company called Half Moon Education to present live classes. And so there was a class that you were going to do in person here in Houston that then got converted to an online course, but it was still the same duration. It was a seven hour long right. webinar. Essentially. So it's like seven hours of speaking. And then the, there were breaks that were, so it was like, like a nine hour day, roughly. Yeah. Yeah. It was a so full, was- but we prepared lots of research, worked out pretty well. The number, there's guidelines, the education firm, like they gave me a guideline. They said, maybe it's, was it, between four and eight minutes per slide. And so that was about right. Yeah. So we may talk more about what it's like to be educators on landscape topics. Our, our writing about the landscape was a very popular topic. And, and I think maybe we're, you know, connecting with listeners who maybe even know as much, if not more than we do about the landscape. 
and are curious about how you then sort of translate that into communicating about it in right. different media. So anyway, that was, that was interesting. And we're using that experience to develop, further develop our online class content. So if anybody's interested, we're working our way toward accreditation for certain courses, depending on if you need continuing ed for your field. Right. It's a process. We're in the process, but the feedback so far on the classes has been good. That again, like the podcast, the intention here is to be helpful, informative, and we do we tend to do just a deep dive in these formats. And we went to you and I like your background as an educator and my I've been an, a participant in many of these seminars myself. So we thought in this world where people are not going to in-person conferences as much, or maybe not at all, this webinar format, and traditionally, I think it's very passive. There's a speaker or speakers, and then everyone else is just listening. And then there might be questions at the very end. That so you can type it's in. It's very passive. Yeah. I mean, talk about falling asleep, potential, like yeah. seven hours. doesn't matter who you're listening to. <laughs> and so we really had this, we programmed it. There were like four main sections of it, and then there were subsections. So like a section might have been an hour and a half. And then, so within that hour and a half, there were maybe two sections where I'd speak on a subject, then there'd be a photo, and it would say like student assessment. And the students assess, like it was an example of a tree. Is this planted too closely? Is it pruned properly based on what we just talked about? And that really, it really got people's attention. People commented, you know, they had very funny anecdotes about, oh, you know, we had this experience. Like, like you think your experience was bad, you know, when there was something, a, a mistake made, we have something even funnier. And so it really got people thinking, how does what's being spoken of relate to my experience? And oh, then yeah. that shared with everybody. Mm-hmm. And then we expanded on, on it. So I thought it was, it worked out well. Yeah, I think I love that. And it's one of the reasons with the podcast, I'm always inviting people to kind of connect with us because it's almost like a co-creative experience in that case. And you're actually mm-hmm. developing education that addresses the, the knowledge that the students bring to the classroom. And it's not just sort of sage on the stage style. So all very important. I'm also uh, trained as a professional vocalist. And so I warned you that you'd get, I just remember bringing lots of tea because the vocal fatigue oh with my, that much speaking hours. can be a lot. So I anyway, gave another was, talk later. I don't know if it was this, might've been the same week. Yeah. That was also exciting. That was we spoke on Longview, that's a historic estate in New Orleans, and the designer was Ellen Shipman. And so we expanded, we gave a talk to the Southern California Institute of Classical Art, Art, Art and Architecture, that chapter. And I think we've thought about doing maybe an episode on her work. It's just so nice because you had all those great photos from Longview. So if you're curious, I mean, it's really the you speaking about it, but then getting to see the grounds, that's so I think engaging. So mm-hmm. it's really, if you have a chance to get over to the King Garden Instagram, that's where you would see those photos from that mm-hmm. visit. So anyway, just kind of a lot going on, keeping, keeping us on our toes. And again, uh, like many of you, I'm sure just trying to adjust and some weeks are better than others. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a weekly podcast. Honestly, sometimes it's hard, but it's a good discipline and it helps, it helps us kind of figure out what day of the week it is. Like, and, what do we have uh, to say? Is there something like we did, we worked with uh, Christo and Jean-Claude last oh, yeah. episode. So that happened to be a current event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's other times where it's an arc, where it's the right plant in the right place, the right shrub. This is more or less like the right perennial. Yeah. The right perennial in the right place. And it is a topic that is 
Well, it's certainly an element of the landscape that is so captivating. I think it's what we notice in gardens. Like if we mm-hmm. go to the Fort Tryon Park, is that? Oh, yeah. That has, that's very well programmed. My gosh, there's a circular circulation pattern where you're on a wide path and there are very large beds that you sort of, how would you describe that? Like you circle back on yourself mm-hmm. and you, like the grade you're climbing, a, you know, slightly and they're just beds packed with many flowering plants that throughout the season. I've seen presentations by the, the woman that's the head gardener, garden designer there. So there they have an outside designer that's a consultant. And then there's a person that maintains the garden. And I think there's the director. And so it was interesting hearing them discuss that, how the director wanted it to be like an amusement park, like a little over the top. So because the average person is not interested in what type of bleeding heart this is or daylily. So having it and the designer was captivated by it being a little more sophisticated and restrained and seeing that push and pull, the end result was really, really good. And would you say like the perennial garden is, if we're thinking of like an English garden, is it mostly perennials that, or that populate those gardens? And there's like a correct less of a rigidness to perennials as plants themselves? Like what are they, first of all, sort of horticulturally speaking? Yeah, good description. This is from right here. And if you attend Texas A&M, which is a land-grant university, you're called an Aggie. So if you attend SUNY ESF in Syracuse, you're called a Stumpy. Because that's like a forestry school, so all these <laughs> nicknames. Which I think I even had a friend who had also gone to Syracuse, and she, I think she independently verified that. Like, She's I got like, oh, that. you're a stumpy. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was a forestry school originally. Yeah. And then it split off, I think. It was one school, and then it split, and then some of it went to Cornell. So oh, okay. I think SUNY ESF might have come slightly before Cornell's landscape architecture program. So this is aggie-horticulture.com. T-A-M-U So a perennial, it describes, because there's annuals, perennials, and biennials. And so it's often confused. Biennials, people are like, that's for two years. So a perennial, a plants that persist for many growing seasons. So it's more than a couple. Generally, the top portion of the plant dies back each winter and regrows the following spring from the same root system. So an example would be purple coneflower which is echinacea, which is a, you know, very popular. Many perennial plants do keep their leaves year-round, so that'd be like a heliobore. There's somewhere the full, and if you're in the subtropics, like in Texas, there'd be perennials that are going to be green all year. And the foliage is regenerating itself, but it never goes completely bare. Where in the, the temperate climate, let's say hostas are pretty well known, or daylilies, those die to the ground. And they're, it's just dirt at a certain time of the year. And grasses tend to be perennial, is that correct? Correct. Right. Then there are, the topic of meadows is popular. So meadows could have wildflowers. There's Lady Bird Johnson Foundation is like, Texas is known for wildflowers. And so the former first lady was an advocate for wildflowers and meadows. So when you plant a meadow, there are plants that are annuals that come up like very quickly and they might be aggressive then they're perennials that might take about three seasons to establish themselves. And that would be true, true in your home garden. So if you planted a garden full of, an, of perennials, it's the first year it's going to be pretty bare, even if you plant them closely. So there's going to be the foliage level, and then the flowers are generally above that. And that's actually, speaking of landscape design in particular, 
that's one of the areas that can, I think, may, maybe, <laughs> that's a lot of qualifying, surprise homeowners, clients, the sheer number of perennials that you have to purchase in order to get even a remotely full looking bed. So you've got the, you know, the shrubs and the trees, which look kind of, obviously they have growth yet to do, but in order to really fill those beds, you're, the volume that you're ordering is quite and high. They come in on, I think if, if you visit a bakery and there's like bread racks, so it's a, it's a cart that's about five, six feet tall and there's, it's racks of, let's say there's loaves of bread on it. So when you order large quantities of perennials, they can come in on racks. So the I mean, for some of the larger projects, it's like 10. No, I haven't done this myself, but that I read about some of the pro- larger projects, a civic garden, it could be tens of thousands. It could be like 60,000, 80,000 perennials. And those, it used to be they to be available in a, in a pint or a quart size uh, or a gallon. So now there's a little more options. So it keeps the cost down. So you can get the something that has a deep, if you think of like water bottles or pop, if people are walking around with a water bottle. So there are perennials that come in a format where it's very deep, but narrow. Hmm. So it's what you're buying really is the root system is what's important. Mm. So there's ways, economical ways you can buy bare root perennials. It's not necessarily what's available at your local garden center is probably a gallon size often. And that could be a retail price. It might be like $20. And so if you need 20 of those, that's, which that might be what's really needed to fill a bed. There's other ways of achieving that. There's mail order sources, there's bare root sources, and some of those places have minimums. So working with the designer, the designer, the professional will have access to some of those other networks. If there's not enough plants, then the weeds are more, more active than the perennials. And so in a quick period of time, the plants that you want to encourage are getting overshadowed by the weeds. Well, I guess, is that when mulching comes in? You see a lot of like freshly planted perennial beds and then a lot of mulch in between them as they get established. And does that suppress weeds or does it? Well, in the short term, in the short term, the mulch suppresses the weeds, but the mulch turns into soil. So the Mm -hmm. irony, I've had contractors point this out to me, the mulch is not a long-term solution because it's going to turn into the richest, most beautiful, delicious soil. And so that's going to grow weeds better than, than the regular soil. Mm-hmm. So it, the mulch should really just be a... So this one solution is to plant the plants pretty close so that within, let's say, two seasons, it's almost filled in. So you're investing a little more on the front end in getting just enough, enough ground covered. Right. And then... I guess the benefit may be that there's less maintenance, less mulch season after season thereafter. So something to consider, good calculation. So what other elements of selection should you have in mind as you're picking perennials? And I noticed, (laughs) so our garden right now has the kind of the backbone. So the trees and the woody shrubs, the palm trees, which are very cool, but not a lot of color, except that green is a color and a lot of variety there. But in terms of like traditional thinking of color in the garden, so is that is that where the perennials start to um, fill that in? The way I work now, there are gardens that are primarily perennials, where that is. And there's some perennials that are more architectural than others. But the way I work on many gardens is 
the woody plants are the structure, like the framework, and then the perennials are, are nested within that. And so to select a perennial, we think, what's the program? What time of year do we want color? And then what's the growing condition? So the perennials ought to work within the framework. I mean, the definition of a garden, to my mind, there's a beginning and an end to it. So where, where does it start? So just putting plants in the ground, it's going to feel kind of undefined and messy. And that's personal preference. And so having a critical mass of plants, which are framed by, by the woody plants, that's, that's generally how I work. I don't know if that answers your question. So you have to, you have to base, to a certain extent, you want to base um, seasonality. Your selection on seasonality, right? Because it sounds like some perennials may be showy at different times of the year. Grasses, for instance, even if they have, they don't necessarily die back to the ground. There's still a structure there. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're thinking not just in terms of like a specific color grouping, but sort of a rolling, phasing kind of grouping and structure throughout the year. Oh, right. Yeah, that reminds me that earlier point that I wanted to make that the color is. Now, the color is important, but it's the structure, the shape is more important. Because before, let's say, like a stillbees are a popular plant or a coneflower. So many perennials, there's a mass of foliage, which is how it's going to sustain itself, photosynthesize. And then the flowers, in some cases, rise above that on a stem. So to have it be legible, the appearance of the plant when it's either dead after it's flowered or when it's when it's emerging and filling in, that is very important to consider. Like, is it, is it interesting when it's not at its peak? Now, if you had plants, if you had a collection of like a Monet's garden, it sounds like the way that was programmed for, it was just based on the flower color. So it didn't really work when it's not at its peak. It can look sort of muddy and mushy. There's these sort of amorphous green shapes of perennials. You don't know one, one begins, one ends. So there were the foliage and the structure, there's enough contrast between different types of perennials. I mean, it sounds to me from what I've gathered over the, the years and months that working with perennials can be quite tricky. Like the variety is actually really, there is so much variety that y- you do have to think in almost four dimensions about what you're doing. And so the success with perennials can be quite challenging, even though it's almost like the the showiest or the prettiest material to be working with. What also struck me when you were giving your talk on Shipman uh, just the other night was that we have these sort of like historical, again, we're kind of talking about the backbone of the, of the landscape. So the box hedges and the trees and, and yet the real art that these, especially the, the women landscape architects, we've talked about Beatrix Ferrand, uh, Gertrude Jekyll or Jekyll, I'm not Jekyll. sure that, there's a like a perennial ta- the talent for mixing the perennial borders was what they were really sought out for mm-hmm. and yet if there wasn't if there weren't careful records preserved it's not something you can necessarily recreate like that's the part that's even though they last longer than annuals it's still somewhat fleeting historically and so we don't always have a clear impression of what those look like right and that some of those people you described there was not color photography during their era so they have there's hand colored photographs. So it's trying to, so even that, what did it look like? <laughs> Perennials will ebb and flow. So, like irises are, are well known to do this. They will get so dense, they have these 
more or less tubers that come to the surface. And every five, seven years, they'll need to be divided. So it, the perennials will have an arc, more or less, of, of vibrancy, and then it'll decline with many of them. So if you're looking at a garden over a period of decades or a century, I mean, the lifespan of the perennials is a lot less than that. And so having, with some of these historic gardens, like Great Dixter's one in England, that was Christopher Lloyd, I believe. So Great Dixter in England, that's a reasonable example where it's a perennial heavy garden. Now there are also like potted, interesting plants. There's like potted agave. So they, it's not just perennials, but and there's topiary. But that's fair to say perennials are a key element there. So Christopher Lloyd was in charge of overseeing and the design component. Now it's Fergus Garrett. Christopher Lloyd passed away in 2006. So Fergus has been at it for, you know, he was there well before that. So some of these historic gardens like that, when the head garden curator designer is interviewed, they'll say, are you trying to keep it like it was? And at many of these, I mean, England has many great examples of, I mean, more or less a high maintenance perennial garden that is like Fourth of July fireworks, you know, of all kinds of activity, all different times of year. And so generally what I hear from these curators is, no, it's, it's a living, breathing entity. And so what is the, to try to maintain it in the spirit of the, like there was original design intent, which might've been it was interesting. It was seasonality. There was a surprise. And so one can have success taking that broad approach. Now, if your approach is, I mean, it's very orthodox or rigid. So trying having, if the period of significance was the 1880s when it was first designed, and you're trying to have plants that have that feel, so those plants might not be adapted to, they might get mildew. They're maybe not thrilled with, if there's more, precipitation or more humid so but there's a way to maintain it so the spirit of the garden i guess more flexibility is needed with perennials because they're more unpredictable than the woody plants where woody plants are are going to more or less behave there's something called a bully with perennials so they're plants that are which grow quickly and crowd out other plants they might have traits that you love and so with perennials some management is needed with some of the more aggressive plants might need to be, they have their place, but they overtake other plants. So there's, there's a continual calibration. Might be at the end of the year, dividing some of those daylilies or iris or, or hosta that's crowding out less aggressive plants. It's one benefit of having moved closer to family is the ability to divide and share plants. Oh, right, which so, we done with your mother. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be family. If you just have a community of gardeners, you can kind of yeah, <laughs> pass Texas, around these There's some um, online aggressive groups. Aggressive perennials. I haven't participated, I haven't actively participated, but where it's a group in Texas that shares plants. So they'd say, we're having a, like a roundup or we're getting together at this date and you can bring plants. You know, you want to like clearly label this is this variety and then you'd exchange. So there's no... I mean, you're investing your time and effort, but there's no money changing hands. And gardeners, that's like the spirit of gardening, really. It's, I'm so proud of this unusual butterfly attracting plant. And I've grown it from seed. Now I have an overabundance. 
or like a vegetable garden. People do that here. Have a zucchini. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was some funny ad on Facebook. I can't, I don't know. The spirit of it was like, like learn how to never buy tomato seed again or something. It was like the the joke was that they had just figured out how plants work. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm not saying propagation is easy. We still need to do a whole episode on that. Um, My, my, my mother, who's partnered with us to do education modules because she's a, a biology uh, professor, is working on a, a unit on propagation. So it's a whole other ball of wax. But the very idea that plants are kind of doing it on their own <laughs> in some cases, and that can be a benefit to all of us in our gardens. So I understand that perennials, I don't know if they were ever not popular. I'm sure certain kinds have always been popular in American gardening, especially in around the world. But there's like a newish, newish, a couple decades old, probably like a resurgence of using perennials oh, in a right. special way. Can you right. talk about that? Those designers, Olm and Van Sweet. So those uh, two gentlemen that founded a firm and I think it's a greater Philadelphia area. So they popularized, it's more or less called the new American garden movement or new American garden style. So that's prior to their work, Europeans, Carl Forrester, there's even a grass named after him. So in Germany and the Netherlands and other parts of Europe, they were using ornamental grasses quite a bit and masses of perennials. So an area, you know, 30 feet long of black-eyed Susans. So that was not happening in America at that point. So Ulm and Van Sweden started to popularize more or less mass planting where Ornamental grasses and perennials were a major part of a garden. So there's, at the Chicago Botanic Garden, there are, it's almost a designer showcase. So it'll be a garden within the garden. And so they did a section there that I visited. And it was one of the key plants. It was a blue coastal grass. And I can't remember the exact name. And then there was a Russian sage, which gets very tall. And it was, it's a section of the garden where you climb up these large natural stone steps and there's like a vista on the top and you're in this sea of this very vigorous like a slateish blue grass and the russian sage is getting up to five feet above that so they help popularize within the u.s it's this mass planting of of perennials so it's big blocks of them and then since then when Pete Udolph was contracted to do the, the Lori Garden in Chicago, so he was pretty much doing what I just described, masses of, you know, 10 feet of black-eyed Susans and 10 feet of coneflower and then 10 feet of hosta, which is quite striking, like a quilt almost. And then there might be shrubs. In her. He, when he went from the Chicago, but the Chicago Lori Park, and then when he went to the High Line, he more or less integrated this naturalistic meadow style, which you would see in the Midwest in a natural setting, where it's, it's a meadow of grasses and there's perennials growing up through them, which is called a matrix style, which is, it, it occurs in nature. It's just mimicking what nature does. So the grasses are the architecture and they're always there the whole year. And they, even when they die back, there's still the structure and the perennials. So it's not as bold. It's very bold when you have just black-eyed Susans. So this is subtler, but there's, there's the framework of the, of the grasses, which yeah, it's quite striking. There's a little more continuity because there's, there's a repetition as opposed to when it's just a sea of a perennial, just a sea of a black-eyed Susan. When it's not at its peak, it's, not the, it's a sea of something that's not 
doing that great. But the matrix planting, there's the support of the other plants and there's a more subtle ebb and flow of maybe bulbs come up through it and then a cone flower and then late in the summer, another kind of an Asian lily. And so it's a little more to that perennial movement started by Omen Van Sweden and, and others, of course. Its arc is almost full circle where it's what's very in vogue in the Chelsea Flower Show and other garden circles. It's more or less mimicking what's in the, in the plain states in the Midwest and the U.S. That's, that's what it looks like in the wild and in Texas. It actually looks like that with, with it's 100% Mother Nature. Oh, yeah, especially in like reclaimed areas. It was, at the, was it the Houston Arboretum we visited that has a, a meadow section that, oh, right. yeah, that really beautifully kind of shows the natural cycle of the grasslands of Texas, which clearly our backyard in the suburbs right. is not that. Although, interestingly enough, we had wildflowers kind of sweeping through at different mm-hmm. parts of the year. And as long as you didn't mow, you could, you could kind of experience a, a small cycle of that kind in our own mm-hmm. backyard space. You know, there's a book which we can, we can find the name of it. I think it was published in Germany. And it's, it rates many perennials on their, the level of sociability, which sounds hmm. sort of funny. But it's, so if a plant is, let's say, like a 5 out of 10, it could work with another plant that's a, it's not going to overtake. So if it was a 10 out of 10, it'd be a bully. It's going to overtake whatever's near it. That'd be like a mint. Mints oh, right. are bullies, like, right? Right, correct. So, you know, mint, so maybe it's a really tough, it's like rocky, slopey. So mint might, you want a bully. You want something that's so aggressive because it's, it's a challenging site. So there are, there's lots of info. The land-grant universities, almost all of those have lists of beneficial plants for pollinators for your area. Almost no matter, if, if you're in a country or a state where it's, with a decent population and resources, there may be guides to what you can plant within your region. And then the sociability of the, of the plants is very important. That it's, there might be three plants you like, but, the, but one is going to overtake the others. And within two years, you're going to lose those other two. Well, it's a, it's a really interesting kind of neat highlight as we, especially on this podcast, think of plants and their goals and they, they almost have personalities. Like they're Correct. these living organisms. They have, you know, behaviors in a way that are important to understand if you really want to work with them to get the maximum effect. And so um, you mentioned pollinators. I know one of the benefits is that, that they do encourage pollinators. I understand the root systems may be important for, you know, preventing things like erosion can you find perennials that need less water if you happen to if that happens to be a limited resource in your area? Right, there certainly are. So native plants, well, if you're let's say in the Pacific Northwest, so it's like pretty it's rainy there. So a perennial, a native perennial there, I would imagine would be tolerant. It's not going to rot. It's used to that. If you're in now urban areas, I mean, there's exceptions, but there's often more paving. And there's often heat island from buildings, depending where in the world you are. So urban conditions, and that's even true of some of the suburbs where plants that are more drought tolerant than what would grow in the wild where you are. That's, I mean, the book, The Planting in the Post-Wild World. So like uh, downtown Manhattan is so foreign to what it was pre-development. So just having a native plant that would grow there, it might not work. So having plants that are 
I mean, as the temperatures get warmer, so a plant that's native to, let's say, Arkansas or Oklahoma or Kentucky, that might be well suited to New York City because it's the temperatures might be closer to Arkansas than New York City. It's so hot, the heat island effect, and when it rains, how much water is going to stay on the site? It might run off because of all the paving. Yeah, that's an important concept. And who wrote uh, that book in particular? Uh, Thomas Rainier and Claudia West, The Great. Planting in the Post-Wild yeah. World. Okay. We just want to give that information for our listeners if they want to pursue reading that. Anything else to add? I mean, perennials, gosh, we, we just scratched the surface. We're really just talking about kind of their purpose in the landscape. And so hopefully this has given you some food for thought. We've addressed, you know, plant specifics in a few episodes where we've gone like, you know, down the road of roses or hydrangeas or boxwoods. So, you know, there may be some topics that come up again, like, you know, inviting pollinators, that kind of thing. But is there anything else you think our listeners should know before we close out this episode? Well, let's see. A couple of points come to mind. The, when I've had the pleasure of attending garden lectures at the New York Botanic Garden, particularly in the cool seasons, like in the winter in particular, they'll have really like premier designers, horticulturalists from around the world. So there was an English garden designer. I remember she really focused on the legibility. So that's, that's like the final test when you do a design. Is it going to be legible? Is, are you going to be able to read it? Because you have these beautiful components. And some of that, it just comes from trial and error. Because how the plants perform in your yard, which is maybe part sun, it might be different than the botanic garden where you saw it. It's like full sun. So it's trial and error. And it's, it's like refining a recipe. It's like a little more of this, a little less of that. Well, and I wonder if for the meadows, if you need some sort of contrast to have that read as legible. I mean, I imagine being in the prairie is just spectacular because you're out, you know, the vastness of it would probably be pretty captivating. But one of the most gorgeous meadow experiences I ever had was, I think we were hiking in Kings Canyon National Park. Might've been Sequoia. Well, Sequoia, Kings Canyon. Anyway. That's in California. In California. And, you know, it's that walk where you're hiking through the woods and then you come out into a meadow and like the moon was in the blue sky and the, wow. you know, the meadow sort of spread out, but it was ringed by the large trees and the light was just like golden and perfect. But it was that contrast that makes it more legible as opposed to walking endlessly in the woods or in the meadow. It's that kind of like mm-hmm. happening upon it that makes it really special. So it's like a garden, I mean, what you described in a way, it's a garden room. Yeah. So it could be a seven acre garden room or it could be hundred square feet. There's probably a path that you were on. Mm-hmm. So you weren't up to your shoulders and flowers. So just a mown area through a meadowy area or a perennial source of path. Mm-hmm. I mean, the European gardens, even the Ohm Van Suite, it, it depends on an area where there's not the perennials, the pathway, or if it's lawn that's mowed, that gives it legibility. It's like where it starts and stops. There's a good resource, Mother Earth News. That's a website also, motherearthnews.com in a magazine. So they, there's beneficial insects. And so I thought this was good. Here, let's try to find it. So they, it's a little vague, beneficial insects. Well, what do you mean? Well, they describe the three Ps of beneficial insects. There's sort of three categories and they're, they all are valid. There's, uh, they might, some of them might sound scary, but pollinators, predators, parasites. So it's an ecosystem. And so there's like a beneficial insect 
might prey on a non-beneficial, like ladybugs might eat mites. So that's mm -hmm. ecologically, instead of using pesticides, which the perennials might attract, and there's information on that, that this perennial will attract a beneficial insect and that your dogwood tree or another plant won't need to be sprayed. And then I think parasites, that category, they may feed their young other insects. So if there's an insect that you don't want, a parasite will be, will, could be processing that. So it's, it's, a, it's a natural pesticide in a way. And so there's lots of good information on that, how you can have a garden that creates habitat, helps sustain insects. And the insects are this key link. The birds eat the insects. So the insects are this, I'm not sure about this, but it's more or less the bottom of the food pyramid. And so it's an important component and we can, we can plant to encourage that. Great. All right. So, and what's our design principle this week? So legibility is a good design principle that we've discussed. And so that's defined in Webster's Dictionary, capable of being read or deciphered. Also capable of being discovered or understood. And then synonyms, antonyms, accessible, coherent, comprehensible, fathomable, graspable, intelligible, understandable. So like you described, if there's a pathway, if that is a paving material or a pea stone or it's mown, it gives a definition. Oh, that's where, the, where, the, where it ends. Maybe there's a backdrop. There are beautiful native inkberry holly or another plant. So it's, you're setting boundaries. Like when you sit down to have a meal, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not, not going to go on all day. And so having success within a definition, it helps makes it legible. And, and things can be edited. And so, I mean, these perennial masters, they are playing with these plant combinations ad infinite, I mean, over and over. And some of these very formal plantings, the designers, they describe, they have a set. So this would be a large-scale perennial planting, like an acre or more. So there's defined areas. And then for the spontaneity, that's sort of, that's the exciting part of perennials, is that they pick, let's say, three different varieties, and those are sprinkled on top of the existing. The wonder and the surprise can be an important component of that, something that you don't expect. And the, the plants will self-seed, so that will happen over time on its own, that you'll have a daylily coming up through a hosta. Instead of looking like a mistake, it can be embraced. And that's sort of like the wonder of nature, that these unexpected moments and unexpected color combinations. Awesome. Great. Well, it sounds like we have another episode in the can, so to speak, <laughs> and we'll look forward to dreaming up our next episode and sharing, you know, what's going on in our garden lives. And we look forward to hearing from you and what is going on in your garden lives. So I hope you make it out in the landscape in some form as summer starts heating up. And I bring things back when you go into the landscape, that could be a cut flower or as a kid, I would, I mean, as an adult, I still do that. I'll bring an oak leaf or an acorn home. I mean, sometimes just having that, like a memento of your time in the landscape. Responsibly though, not in national parks. That's right. Not <laughs> an endangered species. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. But that tactile experience is certainly one that we, we think is special. So anyway, thank you so much for listening and uh, do take care this week. Can't wait to talk to you all next week. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company 
Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details, and also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.